Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Hey, thank you team for leading us today. Thank y'all so much, man. Y'all's ministry is super important to us and we're grateful for you. Former baseball player and manager of the New York Yankees, Casey Stengel said, it's easy to get good players, but getting them to play together, that's the hard part. Not playing together, quarrels and divisions are really just a part of life. They happen all the time and we're often in quarrels or divisions or we're around them, right? The heart of all quarrels and division is really self-will, self-interest, and self-centeredness. When two or more people are determined to have their own way, it will be a matter of time before they quarrel because their interests, concerns, priorities, preferences, convictions will eventually become a source of conflict. There will not be harmony and unity in a people whose desires, goals, and purposes are generated by their egos. James talks about this in his letter. He says in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures? that wage war in your members. You lust and don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The cause for all disunity, conflict, and quarrels is selfish desire. While that is forbidden by the Lord and it's in opposition to his heart and his character, it goes against his very prayer for unity, division, Disunity and quarrels still happen in the body of Christ. I need to just let you know that division in the church is a reality because sin is a reality. Because of disunity and because of division, the Father is dishonored, the Son is disgraced. The Spirit of God is quenched. The church's witness is discredited. And the world is turned off and unconfirmed in their belief. Disunity and division robs Christians of joy. It robs God of his glory. And it robs the world of the testimony of the gospel. As one man once said, division is a high price to pay for an ego trip. You see, in the church at Corinth, there were many problems of which Paul was made aware. We've talked about some of those, and of all of them, Paul deals with division first. I think it's because Paul wants the church to get back to how they started. The book of Acts, 
Luke wrote in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and through 47, he said, day by day, continuing with one mind, daily, one mind. In the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. When there's that kind of unity, the Bible says, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, when God's people are unified, the kingdom of God is advanced. And that really should be our cry here at First Baptist Church, that the, the kingdom of God would be advanced, not our kingdoms. So in our text this morning, Paul teaches us three principles for dealing with with this unity. I wonder if you'd just rise to your feet yet again to just hear the word of God spoken to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, the Bible says it this way. Now exhort you, brethren, Paul says, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you may be complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each of you is saying, well, I am of Paul, I have Apollos, I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and, and Gaius so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. You may be seated. Here's the first thing Paul teaches us about dealing with disunity. He says, first of all, attend the serious call to unity. Attend the serious call to unity. Jesus prayed that we would be one as he and the Father is one, so unity is a really big deal. The Corinthians are experiencing disunity, and it breaks Paul's heart. Can I tell you, it's breaking mine. So he begins with an exhortation, an appeal. He tells them that they need to attend this serious call to unity. So he says, hey, listen to the strength of the call. That's what he says. Listen to the strength of, of Paul's call. In verse 10, he says, now I exhort you, brethren. I exhort you, brethren. 
That word exhort is the word parakalo, and it's the same word we get the word for the Holy Spirit, the word paraclete. It means to call to one's side. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit is, the one that's been called beside us to help us. Paul says he wants to come alongside these believers, and he wants them to come alongside of him to deal with this sin in the body. He says, hey guys, come together, come alongside each other, let's come together. But notice that he calls them brothers. He doesn't start with a command or a demand, but at the same time, he doesn't ignore the reality of disunity. He doesn't want to leave this alone, but he doesn't want to crush them either. And I want to tell you this morning that I don't want to leave it alone, so I have to talk about some things in our body, but I don't want to crush you either. He started out the letter establishing his authority as an apostle, but now he moves in tone to address them as his brothers. They're family. They're brothers and sisters, and they should act in harmony as brothers and sisters. He speaks to them as, as family, as to their true relationship with one another. But yet he also gets super serious because he says, I exhort you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been called, if you remember, in verse 9 of the text that we preached last week, they had been called into the fellowship of the Son. And now they're being exhorted by the name of Jesus and on that fellowship to agree to eliminate divisions and to be made complete by being of the same mind and in the same judgment. In other words, because they are in fellowship with Jesus, they should be in fellowship with each other. Their unity in Jesus is the appeal of this call to unity. Identity, identity, Identity in Christ is the launching pad for unity. We have to go back and remember who we are in Christ. We are brethren. There's only one way by which that happens, right? Everybody that's coming and that's a part of First Baptist Church as a member of First Baptist Church got there not by a decision to be a member, but you got there primarily because you gave your life to Jesus. So if we all came in the same way, why are we divided? Right. Appealing by Christ's name represents all that Christ is. When we are in disunity, it directly affects our relationship with Christ. It brings dishonor to his name. We harm the church and we put a barrier before unbelievers. So, so Paul says, hey, you've got to listen to the strength of this call. I'm telling you, by the name of the Lord Jesus, I'm telling you, you've got to get together. But then he says, listen to the substance of the call. Not does he have to strengthen it, but there's something in the message. There's substance to it. Because he goes on to say that, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. This call to unity is specifically, listen, it's specifically for the local church at Corinth. 
This isn't a call to the church around the world to, to become unified. Paul says, listen, the way that that's going to happen is when the local church gets unified. There should be unity within the walls of this church. He said that they all should agree that that word literally means to speak the same thing. It's very confusing when people are sharing conflicting things about their view of the gospel. About the Bible about how we should live or what we should do or what we shouldn't do. It's devastating in the church when everyone has their own idea and everybody has their own interpretation about what's happening. The congregation becomes divided into factions and people start following those with whom they agree or whom they develop the relationship with. Paul said there's got to be doctrinal unity in the local church There shouldn't be different views from which members can pick and choose. There should not be various groups with their own leaders and their own followers. When it comes to doctrinal truth about the gospel, there can be no two truths. There has to be one. When Paul exhorts him in the name of the Lord, this means there's to be agreement in Christ, his will, and his word. And sometimes in the church, there there are groups that kind of spin off And then those groups that spin off, they say, well, at least we're in agreement with each other. (laughs) That may well be, but that's not what Christ has called you to. He's called you to be in agreement with all of us. Paul calls for agreement in what we speak and how we make judgments. This is agreement in what God has revealed in his word and taught by his apostles. Philippians chapter three says it this way, therefore, all who are mature, Let's have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you as well. However, let's keep living by the same standard in which we have attained. Our text picks up and Paul says there should be no divisions. Divisions is the word for schisms. Literally, it means to tear or to rip. When people disagree, they, they tear and rip away parts of our body. And it hurts, and you feel it, and so do I. Metaphorically, it means to have differences of opinion, a division of judgment, dissension. And this is such a serious call with such substance that Paul writes in Romans, in Romans 16, 17, he says this, Listen to what Paul says about those who would choose to rip and tear people out to go after them. Listen to what he says. Now I urge you, here it is again, brothers and sisters, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned and turn away from them. That's what the Bible says. Because this is serious to the heart of God. Those who are out of line of Scripture are not serving Christ, but their own egos. Well, the Scripture doesn't specifically address, there is room for difference of opinion. But where there is the clear teaching of the Bible, there must be agreement. Let me speak to you from my heart for a moment. The problem we have faced here at First Baptist is not with what the Bible clearly teaches. We're arguing over the stuff that the Bible gives freedom about. 
In other words, we're making absolutes out of our preferences. We're making absolutes about our personal convictions about way things should or shouldn't be done. We're making absolutes out of the style of music. We're making absolutes by the way, the way which we share the gospel, not the gospel itself. We're making absolutes about what curriculum we should or shouldn't use. We're making an absolute conviction and some are leaving because we don't have enough windows in the new church. We're making divisions and absolutes about whether we should relate to other denominations or not. Brothers, that shouldn't be the case. The text goes further and Paul says that they should be made complete. Did you see it? That you would be made complete. That's the word that speaks of mending nets, mending something that's broken, broken bones, dislocated joints, broken utensils or or torn garments. It basically means to put back together again something that was broken or separated. So he's saying to the local body, and, and I'm saying to us, that we have to be put back together both internally and externally. We have to be of the same mind, Paul says, that's internally. And we have to have the same judgments, that's externally. We're to be one in our beliefs and our standards and our attitudes and our principles. Somebody may be asking, well, then what is the standard? I mean, how do we all agree? Where do we get that from? Well, it comes from the teaching and preaching of God's word, amen? Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says it this way in verses 12 through 13, but we ask you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you regard them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. In other words, if we're following those who teach and preach the clear teaching of the word of God, if that's what's coming out of their mouth, then we should agree to that. And then because we do that and all agree on that, then we can live in peace with one another. Those of us who teach and preach will never be perfect or infallible, but we are Christ's instruments for leading his people and I'm not trying to make this about me, I'm just trying to teach you the word, but we have been given the authority to lead the church and make decisions. And because of that, we're to be respected, loved, and yes, followed. Hebrews 13, 17 says it this way, obey your leaders and submit to them. A whole lot of disunity could be solved right there. But see, that's your part, but watch my part because we keep watch over your souls as those who will be called to give an account. Don't you think that that scares the daylights out of me? Paul says you're to do this. You're to submit to them and be unified so that they may do this with joy, not groaning, for that would be unhelpful to you. And you've seen how the disunity has resulted now is really not good for you. There are fissures and cracks in the relationships and he's appealing to them to find ways to love and relate to one another that doesn't bring division. 
He's calling them to adjust their opinions and their worldviews to be in line with the gospel they have received and the fellowship by which they have been brought into by Jesus. The gospel is to shape their thinking and how they go about what they think. It's kind of like this. I don't know if you've had this issue, but I'm telling you, man, I've got some kids, and, and this is true for my family. So if you can't relate, man, I thank God for your family. But, but it's kind of like this. When, when you're going on a trip with your kids, and they're in the back seat of the car or the van, and it's a really long trip, but you haven't even gotten out of the parking lot yet, and they begin to fight. Someone wants to sit somewhere else. Someone wants it colder. Someone wants it hotter. Somebody wants this person to shut up so that they can do their thing. Somebody wants somebody else to speak up because they can't hear what's going on in the front. Some people want music on. Some people don't. Some people want to go to the bathroom. Some people don't. Some people think we should go eat now. Some people think we shouldn't. And they're just bickering and fighting. And we haven't even made it two miles down the road. Fighting and quarreling and division breaks out in my van. It just happens, and I'm like, whoa! Hey, 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 why are we talking to each other like this? That's your sister! That's your sister! How can you say that to her? You should love her. And it breaks my heart to hear some of the things that come out of their mouth. And that's what Paul is saying. How can we say these things to each other? We are family. I want you to know that over the past two years, we've had some disunity. And there are still some who are choosing to fight. There are still some right now who are actively trying to get you to come to what they're doing right now while we meet. Don't think I don't know. There are some who are actively trying to dissuade you and persuade you to leave this body and they unknowingly or maybe knowingly want to continue to try to divide and, and, and cause disunity in this body because they don't like certain people. Can I just tell you, can we just come together? Can we just come together? Let's focus on our family. We started calling for unity before last summer. I don't know if you remember, but our deacon stood before you and read a letter because we were trying to deal with what was happening. And I want you to know, church, that we met with different people and we tried very diligently to work things out. And we had to make some really hard calls and do some really hard things. But because the Bible says unity is a big deal, we had to make some decisions that affected many of you. And my heart breaks for the loss that you've experienced. But can I tell you, some people in our body right now, you're still on the fence. And today I'm trying to say, please come together with us. I want to encourage you, like Paul did, in the name of Jesus Christ, can we please just put our preferences aside? Can we please put our personal convictions on the altar? 
Can we please put our personality choices aside? Can we just put it all aside and make this about Jesus and about his gospel? Can we just do that? Some may be wondering today, Why I'm dealing with this. I didn't choose this text. This text chose me. It's in the book of 1 Corinthians. And if Paul can address this unity in the Corinthian church, I have to follow his model and address it here. And I want you to know, Christ's heart is for us to be together, so we have to hear the serious call. So can we just agree? Can we just heed this call and come together? But then secondly, Paul says, analyze the selfish causes of disunity. Verse 11, he says, I've been informed concerning you, my brother, and for Chloe's people, they've told me that there are quarrels among you. As we learn in the introduction, the Corinthians had written several letters to Paul telling about many things that were happening in the church, problems about the Lord's Supper, about immorality, about the abuse of gifts, about the denial of the resurrection, and somehow conveniently, they left out the part that they were disunified. (laughs) So Paul was informed by another source about the division in the body. And can I just tell you, that's how I find out about it. You don't tell me. I have to find out from another pastor that somebody else is in his building in the afternoons having meetings. I have to find out from somebody who works in the government that such and such is renting their building. Oh, didn't they used to go to your church? That's how I had to find it out. So Paul is informed, and we're usually informed by another source. And Chloe probably was a wealthy businesswoman from Ephesus where Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And so she had her people tell Paul about the issues in the church that the church didn't want him to know about. He says that these heard there. He says, I've heard that there are quarrels among you. That, that word quarrel means rivalry. It means contention or sharp challenges or, or, or strife or fight over words. What's causing it? Well, we have to analyze that. So Paul says, determine factions and horizontal fellowship. Determine the factions that are in the horizontal fellowship. In verse 12, he says, some says, hey, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. (laughs) There's a personality and preference problem going on. And as we've said it many times in our public meetings, I want to say it again to you. The sad reality about this division is it was never theological at all. It was never a biblical issue. This is over personalities. Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Jesus all preached the same gospel. They had divided themselves over stylistic things, over the way certain people said things. Who was the most eloquent? Who was the most impressive? Who was the clearest teacher? Who was the one that stuck closest to the original intent? They they were fighting over those issues. Instead of uniting with each other, they were uniting around certain people. And to be very honest with you, there's some people still doing that that still have membership at our church. Some are meeting in somebody's house. Some are meeting in another building somewhere here in town. And some are still saying, well, they want to follow this person. And some are saying, well, we want to follow this person. And can I just be honest with you to tell you that that's not the will of God for anybody? 
Somebody says, I have Paul. People attach themselves to the founder, Paul. That speaks to those who want to be led and taught by their former pastor or spiritual leader. And it's true. Many of us, we just want to follow those who led us to the Lord or founded the church or with a pastor previous to us. That's what we all do, right? I mean, we all, that's the natural inclination of our heart. And I get that. But, but the Bible says that that's not who you should follow, some said they would follow Apollos. Apollos was this young, eloquent, philosophical speaker. Some today only want to listen to the young preachers and the young teachers, the hip and the cool. They don't have a place for those who are older, and I think that's not God's will either. Some people want to follow Peter or Cephas, so people attach themselves to great teachers. And, and this really means that, that Peter was the one who led most of those Jews to Christ. And so people want to follow the person who led them to Christ. And we see that happening in our church. Much of the division is because people say, this person led me to Christ, so therefore I've got to keep following him. And then some people say, hey, you know what? We've got it all figured out. We're just the Jesus people. We don't need anybody teaching us. We've got it all figured out. One group honored the founder. One group honored the eloquent young order. One group honored an apostle. And some people say, we just make it about Jesus. And here's the problem. Division comes when we elevate the messenger over the message. We got to make it about the message. That's what unifies us. That, that's what brought us into this thing together, right, was the message. They're putting one group against the other. That's rivalry. Our group is better. Our group is how things should be. It's natural to have affections for those who've led us to Christ, to, have, to those who've been our previous pastor, to those who've led our, our Sunday school, to a, to a particular deacon. But when that affection causes us to be segregated from our other brothers and sisters, it's a problem. Spirit-filled living results in humility and unity. Sin and carnality produces pride and division. So we not only must determine the factions in our horizontal fellowship, but now we look to the cause of those factions, and that leads us to this, determined fractures in vertical fellowship. Verse 13 and 14, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you would say you were baptized in my name. Paul says that he was called an apostle by Jesus, but that loyalty does not belong to him. He said the loyalty belongs to Jesus. He wanted no part of any faction that had been named for him. And those who are trying to create a name for themselves, I, I, I would get leery of that real quick. He had never been crucified for anyone and no one had been baptized in his name. So he's saying, why y'all want to follow me? His purpose was to bring people to Christ and not to himself. It's all about Jesus, but they had made it all about something else. Let's hear the word of God on this. In 1 Corinthians 6, 17, the Bible says, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, for just as the body is one, Yet has many parts, all the parts of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also in Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. 
Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. To be divided in the local church body is a contradiction to our redeemed nature. Can I say that again? To be divided in this body is a contradiction of your salvation. John 17, Jesus prayed this, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now watch the so that. When you and I are not united, here's what will happen so that the world may believe you sent me. When we're not divided, the world can't believe in the name of Jesus. When we're divided and quarreling, this means we're walking in the flesh and we're being disobedient to the Lord and then we're not right with the Lord. When there are horizontal factions in the church, you can rest assured there's a vertical fracture with the Lord. You can rest assured. Somebody's not right with the Lord is what I'm saying. And that's not what I say. That's what Paul says. You remember two of Adam and Eve's sons were named Cain and Abel. Cain was driven by envy. He gave sacrifice to God of vegetables to God, but, but God was displeased. Abel gave a meat sacrifice and God was pleased. Cain thus was angry with God and went and killed his brother. What I'm trying to tell you today is that when things are not right with God, we will eventually kill each other. When you are angry at God, when there's a problem with God, it always comes out this way. This is not the will of God for us. This is really a problem with the Lord. And the answer, the fix for, for our disunity with anybody is really for us to say, God, how have I been a part of the problem? Where's my heart? It's not to look at them. It's to say, God, where's my heart with you? Intending to raise cattle, a family from New York bought a ranch out west. When their friends visited and inquired about the ranch's name, the would-be rancher replied, well, I wanted to name it Bar J. My wife wanted to name it Susie Q. One of our sons wanted it the Flying W. The others in the family wanted it to be called the Lazy Y. So we're calling it the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y Ranch. Well, the person said, well, then where are all your cattle? He said, well, none of them survived the branding. <laughs> When we're worried about putting our own stamp and having our own preferences make the cut, we're not going to survive the branding. How can the vertical be mended? We have to lay down our desires, our preferences, our opinions. How, how, 
We've got to come to the point where we don't alienate people because they're not like us. They don't fit into our plans, our programs, our views. We have to come back to Jesus. We've got to get the vertical right, and then the horizontal takes care of itself. We've got to attend the serious call and analyze the selfish causes. And then the last thing very quickly is apply the single cure for disunity. There's one cure. Paul says in verse 14, he says, hey, man, I thank God I baptized none of y'all. Well, I did baptize the, the household of Stephanas and Crispus and Gaius, but, but whether I don't really know if I baptized any other people. That's problemsome. We got some issues we got to do there. But then verse 17 is the cure. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, that so the cross of Christ would not be made void. It's at this point I've got to do a sidetrack really quickly to help you because you guys are you're studying and reading the Bible and you automatically have some questions. So let me, let me help you with some things that you may be anticipating. One is that Paul says he baptized Stephanus and his whole household. Some around us and even around the world would say that this means then infants or small children should be baptized and that's how they enter in the body of Christ. What I want to remind you is to never make a doctrine out of what's not in a text. That's not what the text says, but that's not what it doesn't say. So be careful where you build your doctrine. Also, we know that the rest of Scripture denies infant baptism also this text does not mean then also that baptism made those people right in that household. It means because in verse 17, the context means that Paul had preached the gospel to them. And because they believed the gospel, all those in Stephanus' household who believed the gospel then were baptized. Just, just, just throwing that out there. <laughs> and then Paul says, well, man, whether I remember if I baptized anybody else, I don't know. I mean, he says, I didn't baptize, but then I did. And so then we've got this problem we have to deal with about the inspiration of Scripture. I mean, did Paul really remember and forget? I mean, why do we got something in there that seems contradictory? Well, you need to remember and to know that the writers wrote inherently, and that means that what they wrote was never wrong. They wrote infallibly, meaning that it would never lead anybody astray. So while they were inspired and inerrant and infallible, they were not omniscient. <laughs> In other words, one commentator said they were preserved from asserting error, but they couldn't remember everything that had happened to their life, even though they could remember everything that God told them to. When writing the word, there were no errors. Paul didn't know everything about God, but can I just tell you, he didn't even know everything about himself. But he did, however, know everything God had revealed to him, and that's why he wrote it down. Things he didn't know and had no way of knowing is what God taught him. And what he knew on his own, he could forget, just like you and me. But what God has revealed, we can trust that it's there, and we can trust it that it's not wrong. Paul says he, he baptized Crispus. Who was Crispus? Crispus was the leader of the synagogue in Corinth when Paul first came and preached the gospel. Crispus was saved, and his conversion led to many others coming to Christ. Who is Gaius? Well, since the letter to the Romans was written from Corinth, and this Gaius then is probably the host to whom Paul refers to in Romans 16. He also came to faith under Paul's preaching. What is the point? What is Paul trying to say? What is the cure for disunity? It's in the text about baptism. Remember, A, the priority of the gospel. Remember the priority of the gospel. He says, God didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. 
your views, your opinions, your preferences, listen to me, all that about what we think is right, what we think is wrong, what color the carpet is, what stain we should put the concrete. Should we use life waste? Should we use something else? Should we partner with this denomination? Should we not? Whatever, all that stuff. Was that crucified for you? No! So then why do we make a God out of it? That's what he's saying. All that stuff was not crucified for us. The gospel and Jesus is is what was crucified and who was crucified for us. The cure for disunity and division and rivalry is dying to ourselves. It's dying to our ways, dying to our desires. We need the gospel not just for salvation, but for unity in the church. The vertical fracture with God is mended by Jesus. The vertical fracture with God is mended by Jesus who experiences and absorbs a vertical fracture on our behalf. He became sin on our behalf and he was separated and torn from the Father on our behalf. On the cross, Christ was divided and broken and torn apart so that we don't have to be. Have to remember the priority of the gospel but then rely on the power of the gospel. He says, I, I'm not come to, to preach with cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void of its power. He didn't use cleverness. He didn't want ever anybody to think that it was his persuasion convicting men. Paul knew the power was in the gospel for I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God and the salvation for any who would believe. The power is in the gospel. Acts chapter 26, 16 and 18, Paul remembered his call to preach, but get up and stand on your feet on the road to Damascus. For this purpose, I have appeared to you, Paul, to appoint you as a servant and a witness, not only to the things in which you've seen me, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from Jewish people and from Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and the power of Satan to the power of God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. Paul said, that's what Jesus called me to do and that's what I'm doing and that's what we got to get back to is the gospel. The power of the gospel tells us that Christ was emptied so that we don't have to be. No longer do we have to search for an identity or a cause or or to be identified with this people or to fit in with those people. Jesus Christ has become our identity. Jesus suffered division and fracture. He experienced the breakdown of the vertical and the horizontal relationships to secure for us the vertical and horizontal relationships that we currently have. When that is the priority and that is the power that we rely on, Things that divide us lose their power and cannot divide us. It doesn't come with eloquent words of wisdom. Paul is contrasting the wisdom of the most knowledgeable men and the ineffable wisdom of God. Paul didn't have to use sophistical philosophies because that would just obscure the power of the gospel. One day a professor demonstrated to his class the power of an electromagnet. He placed two pounds of nails on a table And there was the magnet that was underneath it that it was tied to a switch. He flipped on the switch to power that magnet and the nails came together. And then he could form those nails into various shapes as long as the power was on. 
And I'm here today to tell you that when the power of the gospel is on in the church, all the people will come together and God can do with us what he wants to. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically in tune with each other? And when you and I say our tuning fork at this church, the thing we're going to rally around is King Jesus and his gospel we automatically all get tuned to the same thing. So here's what happens when there's disunity. Somebody's just out of tune. Somebody's just out of tune. So I just want to encourage you this morning to tune into the gospel. Attend the serious call to unity. Analyze the selfish causes and apply the single cure. Jeremy, would you guys come? Did you know that snowflakes, which we see very rarely here, are one of, most, one of nature's most fragile things? You know how delicate a snowflake is? Anybody know how delicate that is? Just let me see your hands. Anybody know how delicate one of those things? They're, they're delicate, right? But can I tell you something? Do you know what happens when you put a bunch of them together? You can knock somebody out with a snowball. You can build a stinking igloo. You go to Antarctica and see what a bunch of snowflakes together can do. It can cause a tsunami. See, when we're divided, we're very delicate. We're fragile. But when we come together, we can do amazing things. Imagine up here on the stage that, you know, I would just don't turn this microphone on. It's illustration purposes only. Imagine right now if I was up here on the stage and I just had one simple stick in my hand and it's probably about that thin and it's not a cedar or anything. It's one of those cheapo trees. If I had this stick in my hand, I could probably break it pretty easily, right? Maybe over my knee, put a little pressure, right? But then, you know, if I, if I got two of them together, I could probably maybe, Bill Scott, I could probably break two might be able to break two. If I got three together, now, now I probably got a strain, right? I mean, now I'm at the point where I got a strain. If I was Dustin Burton, I could do four. That guy is strong. And odor ain't everything, but that's just okay. But man, if I got maybe five or six or seven or eight, if I got about eight of these bad boys together, how many people think I'd have a hard time breaking eight sticks? Church, I'm trying to tell you, unless we come together, we're all going to end up broken. Unless we come together, we will not survive. So can I encourage you today? Are you in agreement with where we're headed as a church? Are you still just bent on making sure that we know about your preferences and your opinions? Is there any area in your life that the Holy Spirit has convicted you this morning? Is there anyone you need to go and speak to after this service? 
Well, Jeremy, I didn't plan on this, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And while you guys sing, I'm going to ask this church, if you would agree with me that we can agree and make this church about Jesus and his gospel, I wonder, would you meet me at the altar? And could we all just begin to pray for this church and pray that God would bless us with an unshakable unity? So that's your altar call today. Can we meet here and make it about Jesus? Would you stand to your feet?